What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Monkey Finance Podcast. Today, we're going to be recording episode number 71. This is the first episode of 2023. So I just want to wish everyone a very, very happy new year. Hopefully, uh, you guys didn't party too hard. I went to bed before the countdown. just shows my age now. But uh, welcome, everybody, to 2023. And I figured... What better way to kick off 2023 than a topic about um, three steps that you can take in 2023 to start your journey to financial independence? Uh, Now, these steps or philosophies are going to be really versed around investing. Um, When I started my financial independence journey, I had to get the personal finance part right first. And uh, to do that, I had to start writing a budget out every month. I had to pay off my debt, had to actually up my income to be able to then get to the part of investing. So I'm assuming, and probably a bad assumption because a lot of Americans struggle with this, but I'm assuming if you're listening to an investing podcast, you have the personal finance stuff down already and you have excess money left over to invest. If you don't, uh, then I think you should start there first. But whenever you want to start thinking about an investment philosophy or an investment strategy, you need to look at what works for the normal, average, everyday person. Not what works for billionaires. Um, Sadly to admit, most of us are not going to ever reach billionaire status in our lifetime. So we shouldn't be uh, looking at the Elon Musks of the world and trying to uh, copy or emulate their strategy to, to, to becoming financially independent because not all of us can just start a successful startup EV company and become millionaires, right? Or billionaires, I should say. So th- that's a bad place to start. Another place when you're trying to lock down an investment philosophy you shouldn't look at is Wall Street, right? Because when you really sit down and think about this, and it took me a long time to figure this out in the beginning, I was really, really into what the analysts on Wall Street were saying, what the experts on Wall Street were saying was going to happen because I figured, hey, they do this for a living. So whatever they say, uh, I took it to heart and I tried to follow their advice. I looked at analyst uh, ratings on stocks and predictions or where the price was going to go. And uh, that's how I made my investment decisions. But As I got further and further along in my investing career, I figured out, wait a minute, Wall Street is in the business of taking my money. They're not in the business of helping me. And the more that I trade, the more that I listen to other analysts, the more that I invest in actively managed funds, all I'm doing is feeding into this big monster that is Wall Street. And at the end of the day, they're kind of like the casino. Whatever the market does is irrelevant to them uh, as long as you're participating in their game. And just like the casino, the more hands you play, the house is going to win. The house gets the advantage. Same thing here with Wall Street. The more trades you do, uh, the more investment strategies that you uh, change, uh, the more funds that you buy because of performance or recent performance, or the more you shift your portfolio around, um, what you're really doing is falling into the playbook of what Wall Street wants you to do. And so thinking of this from a perspective of uh, buying into hot fund managers, for example, in 2020, 
the best recent example I have is ARK Invest and, and Kathy Wood and all the bold predictions that she made around not just her fund, but around Tesla, around Bitcoin, about everything that was going to happen. And for a year or so, she looked right. And, and people bought into that craze. But then eventually, like Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you can see who's skinny dipping. Unfortunately, Aunt Kathy here might have been skinny dipping, right? So bad place to look when you're when you're looking at uh, investment strategies and philosophies is fund managers because they're going to hype up their own funds because they want your money another bad place to take advice or look is from financial advisors now i don't mean to throw this blanket over that term financial advisor and say every financial advisor you come across is going to be bad but at the end of the day if you just think about it I would say over 90% of financial advisors, they work not on the fiduciary standard, but they work on the suitability standard. So it's what suits them and you, not just what's best for you. So their main interest, their primary interest is how can they make money? You have the money, you give it to them, they charge you sometimes an astronomical fee of one and a half, two percent for uh, you having the privilege of then having them invest your money. The, the, the truth is they don't know any better than you. If they're investing in picking actively managed funds, they're betting on other advisors and fund managers like Kathy Wood, right? If they're picking and, and buying index funds, well, at least that's good, but that's something you could do yourself. So why pay them a one and a half, two percent 2% fee for them to hold your hand and then turn around and buy the S&P 500. It's kind of silly. Now, there is financial advisors that, that, that work not on a dual standard, but they're exclusively fiduciary financial advisors. They either work on a flat fee or an hourly basis, and they go above and beyond of just investing. They actually help with estate planning. They help every aspect of your personal finances. Those, I think, are worth the money. But again, very, very hard to find the good ones. And this stuff is not that difficult. Um, I put in a lot of hours learning about investing, but looking back on all the reading and, and research I've done, I could have probably saved myself the headache of going through countless and countless amounts of articles and books and, and um, uh, articles from... Um, uh, professors and I mean, I've I've consumed this stuff to the point where I think I overburned myself uh, with the information that I have. But at the end of the day, John Bogle's approach is the simplest. So use the simplest approach to actually get the best end result. And that brings me to the first step: is when you finally buy into a philosophy, make sure it's from a trusted source. So I bought into. Uh, John Bogle's philosophy. His philosophy was to use low-cost index funds, uh, to use broad diversification, to not time the market, and to basically set it and forget it. And that was the philosophy. The strategy was using the low-cost, broadly diversified index funds. And so far, it's not only helped me um, sleep better at night, and, and it's helped me basically put my investing stuff on the back burner. I don't need to worry about my investments anymore. I don't need to worry about should I trade in or out? Did I make a mistake selling that? Should I buy this? 
um, the, the more of those um, question marks that pop up in your in your mind, the more diluted your mind gets, and chances are you're going to make the wrong mistake. So what I want you to focus on in 2023 is finding somebody you can trust, whether it's John Bogle. It doesn't have to be. If you think that John Bogle is not a trustworthy source, um, you can find other people. J.L. Collins is another uh, fine author who pretty much backs up what John Bogle was talking about in the 90s. J.L. Collins just tends to talk more to uh, the, the, the younger generation, so you might find his work easier to read. Another uh, gentleman that I have had on the channel and I've studied myself is Paul Merriman, uh, who now is retired or has been retired for 30 plus years, but he works in the financial education space and he helped uh, help me understand small cap value and uh, from the and you know go from there and do my own uh, studying and deep dives into it. But again, trustworthy sources who at the end of the day, are looking out for you. They don't have a second motive or other interest um, to enrich themselves. And sure, you know, John Bogle and J.L. Collins and Paul Merriman, they wrote books, they're authors, they sell books, they make money from those books. That does not mean that they're looking out for themselves. Uh, at the end of the day, they're still pushing uh, something that the average person, a regular Joe, can implement in their investing strategy and actually find success with it. Uh, what happens when we entrust the wrong people is uh, because they're looking out for their best interests, they don't care what happens with your investment strategy or your money. And you yourself can be the best steward of your money. Nobody can handle your money better than you. So why not take the extra, what is it, maybe 40 to 60 hours to read a few books and educate yourself from trusted sources on uh, time-proven strategies that are successful when it comes to investing. Once you do that, you really only got one thing left to do. So you've got the philosophy part down. You've, you've found a trusted source. you got the strategy part down. Whoever your trusted source is, you've either taken advice from their strategy or implemented or mush strategies like I did. I basically took a a John Bogle, J.L. Collins, Paul Merriman strategy and mushed it into one and created my own. That works too. Um, once you do that, you got one thing to do and that's you got to stay the course. Uh, and this is very important. I know it's uh, a very common phrase you might hear, especially in a down market. Oh, just stay the course. Don't do anything. Um, a lot of the times it's it's easier said than done. I think investing can tend to become a very uh, emotional and, and sensitive topic for a lot of people when they see red on their screens. And the best way to stay the course that I've uh, found in my own personal journey is in the very beginning in 2019 when I started to seriously invest and dump a whole bunch of money into uh, FSKX, I watched that thing like a hawk. Even though I had one fund, even though I was buying weekly and buying in large amounts, $1,000, $2,000, really buying in large amounts every week, I still watched it like a hawk. And sure, it motivated me to see the balances go up. Sure, it was a good year in the stock market and I made money. Uh, But what I realized is the more and more I watched it, the more and more I had an inkling of, oh, I found something else that did better, so maybe maybe I should be in this too, right? And then you start to uh, spread your uh, branches and learn about all these different 
uh, investments that have done better than yours. And you start to think, well, what if I just had that? You know, I would have had an extra $50,000 this year. And the more and more I did that, the more and more I wanted to start changing up my strategies. And that's when I tried investing in REITs, investing in dividend stocks, individual stocks. And I've, uh, on a smaller scale, of course, I've only uh, done that with probably less than 5% of my net worth. But still, I, I always wanted to branch out and try these different things and then compare it to FXKX and my retirement accounts to see how I was doing. And it was such a... a, a a false uh, reading on on what my performance was because I was checking it every day. Um, if uh, a few weeks or a few months went by, uh, the strategy that I was in, if it was underperforming underperforming FSKX, I would get out of it and try something else. And uh, round and round the merry merry go round went for me until finally I decided to wise up in 2020. And I think a lot of it had to do with when the crash in 2020 happened in March. Um, a lot of the investments that I was in outside of FSKX uh, got hit pretty bad, uh, 40, 45% when the market only felt like 20 or 25. And I finally woke up and I said, okay, I can't, I can't keep doing this, right? I can't keep playing around, even though it was a small position, right? I, I at that point, I had established a $100,000 portfolio in FSKX and I had maybe a $10,000 portfolio with uh, individual stocks. Uh, but still, I said, I can't keep doing this. And um, I decided to sell everything out of the individual stocks, put it all in FSKX or FXAIX, uh, depending on which accounts I had. And I, I rode that all the way through until I finally uh, did enough research to incorporate small cap value in the, in the later half. I started with small cap value actually in April of 2020, but in the later half of that year, about September or October, is when I really started to add small cap value. And then the last piece that came, the international piece, um, came in, in January of 21 when uh, I finally created this strategy, the Monkey 3. And since then, I've been staying the course, the third step. And it's really, really given me clarity and helped me understand that investing for the long run. And I'm not just saying that. I'm actually about that now. Um, I check my portfolio once a month to uh, show it here on YouTube and kind of discuss the gains or losses that I've had and how how the balances sit. Outside of that, if I didn't have that obligation for YouTube videos and I'm con considering maybe just switching to quarterly or something like that, it, there's no other uh, reason for me to log in and check my portfolio. And it's really helped... Uh, ease my mind quite a bit. The other thing it does is it takes those emotions and those uh, those uh, nervous feelings of, am I in the right strategy? You're comparing other things against the monkey three every day or every month and seeing how they're doing and trying to find the next best thing. It, it really just takes all that away. Um, I don't follow the markets very closely anymore. I mean, I know what they've done this year or last year, I should say. Uh, but uh, I don't follow them that closely. I don't really care anymore. And I think I've become a way better investor because of it. And in 2023, that'll be the third, the start of the third full year for the Monkey 3. Uh, I recently did a video, I think a few weeks ago now, uh, comparing how I've done since I've been in my strategy for two years. And I've done okay. I've slightly outperformed the U.S. market and done even a little bit better over the global market. And again, 
when I des- designed this strategy, it was meant to not only be a strategy that works for me, but I designed it thinking of other people uh, in mind as well, especially people that are uh, in the 20s and 30s who can afford to take on a little more risk and have a little bit of a wilder ride with the small cap value portion uh, to my strategy. But I designed it with those people in mind because I want people to own the entire world. I want people to have a little bit of a small cap value tilt and still have similar, in the short run at least, have similar performance to the market. I don't want their portfolios to look way too different from the market, just like I don't want my portfolio to look different than the market because that I know is can be scary. It can induce thoughts of, am I in the wrong strategy? So when I designed it, I wanted pretty close correlation to the market, but the 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 wild card piece being the U.S. small cap value over the long run uh, would definitely, definitely show out performance, at least it has in the past. Um, and that's the whole idea behind it that has helped me stay the course. Um, I have three funds to look at uh, when I do my portfolio updates. I look at them every month. I say, okay, good. This one did this. This one did that. This one did that. Close the portfolio and go about my jolly day. And when everybody can, and I'm talking to the retail investors, when every retail investor can get to this uh, uh, level in their investing career, I think that's when they will start to find the most success. When the only thing you have to worry about is how much money you're contributing gosh, investing is so easy and simple and clear. You then realize, I don't need a financial advisor. I don't need to invest in active management. I don't need anything better than just the market. And the more people can come on board with that thought process, the more people can accept that, I think the stronger retail investors will get. And the last point I want to make, uh, the three stra- the three steps are there, right? The philosophy, the actual investment strategy, staying the course, that's your three steps. Uh, but one other, uh, I'll give you a bonus step here, is avoiding the noise. Um, in every single Bogle book I read, avoiding the noise was a key point that he always pointed out. And the way he would uh, describe the noise is anything from financial news media anything that Wall Street analysts are predicting or spewing out, um, anything that uh, involves people saying that the market's going to continue to go down or the market's going to continue to go up. Um, As a matter of fact, in one of his books, he mentioned a good indicator of when a crash was coming is when everybody believed the market was going to keep going up. And he used the examples because a lot of his books were written in the 90s and early 2000s. He used the example of 1997, 1998, 1999. The market collectively uh, over those three years had gone up 25%, 33%, and 35%. And when people were polled and questioned in 2020, or I'm sorry, 2000, what was the market going to do? Everybody thought it was going to go up 20% plus. And of course, that's when the, the, the big uh, bubble burst and everything came crashing down. Uh, some things 50%, some things 80%, and um, a lot of people got hurt. So that's a good indicator. When everybody's telling you or everything you're seeing around this noise is telling you the market's going to keep going down, and chances are that's the end of whatever has been happening. And if everybody's going to keep telling you 
oh, the market is only going to keep going up, then you should probably think, oh, yeah, this is about, this is the end of the run. It's time for a bear market. And these cycles, um, ebbs and flows of the market are nothing new. Um, the market's been around for a very, very long time. Um, and it's it's very normal, right? It's it, You have uh, a period of, of fat green years, and then you have a period of lean red years. And uh, as long as you have picked the right strategy for your time horizon, meaning you shouldn't be in uh, a very aggressive strategy, and I do think the monkey three is pretty aggressive. You shouldn't be in that strategy if you're 55, 60, and you're looking to retire in the next five years because it can be unpredictable in a five-year, 10-year period. It really can. Um, there's uh, data that supports going back all the way to 1925. When you look at some decades, um, give it that if you look at any uh, rolling deck, any 40-year period rolling um, in 10-year uh, spans, the strategy, the lowest they'll do is 8.5%. So that's good, right? But at the end of the day, there is those outlier decades uh, where the strategy can sometimes have a bad decade. Um, and it's it's not very common, but it can happen. So understanding when, you're, when you've set your strategy up that it matches your time horizon, it matches the amount of risk you're willing to take uh, because it's not, at the end of the day, m yes, there's a thousand strategies that, might have a better uh, return than the one that you're in, but is it right for you? Is it the strategy that is aligned with your time horizon and, and the risks that you're willing to take? Uh, a lot of people take on a whole bunch of risk, but they're not ready. Uh, they only look at the reward. They're not ready for when 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 the risk shows itself and the strategy goes wrong and it goes down eighty percent. They're they're not prepared for that, and then they the you know, want to sit and question, well, why did this happen? Well, it happened because the, the amount of risk you took was inappropriate for your time horizon, right? And, and and sometimes the amount of risk, I don't care if your time horizon is 60 years, if you're dabbling in, in very risky ventures like picking individual stocks, uh, with the success rate of that being so low for the average retail investor, even if you have 60 years, it's very, very difficult to recover from. Um, uh, Good example. I was just talking to a gentleman in the YouTube comments section who was mentioning uh, in, in one of my videos. I kind of talked about those uh, uh, hype, um, sort of fad investing uh, topics that uh, came about in 2020 and 2021. And uh, AMC was a good example. You had a lot of people, a lot of young people who are in AMC who've lost 80% of their money. And now for them to recover that 80% loss, they need to have a 400% gain, right? Because if you, let's just use easy numbers here. If you put in $1,000 in AMC, you lose 80% of it. What is that? That's $200. If you make up 80%, what's 80% of 200? It's definitely not back to that 1,000, right? So you have to have a 400% gain just to get back to 1,000, back to what you put in or back to break even. If you look at this from a perspective of the stock market, Smart stock market on average doubles every seven years. So that means for the stock market to have a 400% gain, it's going to take 28 years. So it's going to take those people 28 years to make up for that one mistake of putting something in, in a very high, high risk investment like AMC. And 
That's saying that if they go back to a index fund, if they stay in AMC, it could go to zero. And that's the other thing with individual stocks. Um, the possibility of going to zero is is a real thing. Uh, with index funds, you have so many stocks within that basket of that index fund. Um, that index fund can, I don't want to say cannot, but it it more than likely won't go to zero. If it's at zero, that means every single company within that index fund has failed. Um, I think the world would ha have a whole heck of a lot more problems on their hands if that happens versus if AMC goes to zero, people wouldn't bat an eye. Even if something like Tesla goes to zero, I'm not, again, I'm not predicting this will, please don't hate on me, even though I'm not very bullish on Tesla. But uh, let's just say Tesla, a top five or top 10 company, S&P 500, let's say it goes to zero. Well, as it's falling, it gets smaller and smaller in the S&P index, right? It, at one point, Tesla was 3.5% of the S&P 500. Um, I haven't checked recently, but my guess it's somewhere around 1.5%. And if it goes to zero, it's just going to be less and less dominant because the, the index funds, or at least the broader ones, they're um, market cap weighted. So depending on the uh, stock's market cap, that's the higher the market cap, the more weight it's going to have within the index. And as the companies start to go closer and closer to zero, they're going to have less and less weight in the index, meaning they will have less and less impact on the price of the index. And it's very possible for companies that are in the top 10 of the S&P 500 to go out of business. Uh, if you don't believe me, I can give you a few examples. Uh, do you remember Sears, Sears Holdings? Yeah, Sears was a top 10 company in the S&P 500. It's no longer around. Do you guys remember Enron? Enron was in the top 10 of the S&P 500. It's no longer around. So even though top 10 companies of the S&P 500 can go to zero, um, the S&P 500 has still returned a positive return uh, during that entire span that companies have come in and out of the index. And there's a cool chart, and I'll uh, see if I find a link to this uh, a graph that shows the top 10 of the S&P 500 from 1985 to present. And it's really cool seeing uh, what different companies were in the S&P 500, what, which companies have kind of fallen off. And some of them, you'd be shocked. Like, you'd be shocked to think, uh, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, S&P 500 was full of oil companies. It was full of telecom companies, uh, the Googles, the Amazons, the uh, Teslas, uh, Apples. They were in their infancy or they didn't exist. And the S&P 500 was growing at a very, very high rate in the 90s. So to to think that the investment strategy where you're picking individual stocks is not risky because maybe you pick 10 stocks, well, it's a very decent possibility that 10 stocks you pick fall out of the top 10 of the S&P 500. And as a matter of fact, if you look at any 10-year period of the top 10 in the S&P 500, it's never the same. They're never the same companies. And with technological advances, the the lifespan of businesses is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. They're growing faster from from their infancy to, to, to where they reach their peak growth. They're growing faster, but every business has a life cycle, right? Uh, even though a business is not a living, breathing human being, it still has a life cycle. It starts out as a little baby, and uh, it grows, 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 grows. Eventually, it reaches its peak 
and then it's um, a steady and slow decline and some for some of them it's a drastic decline to to bankruptcy but it's very rare for companies to uh, and I know there's a few examples out there of older companies they're still out there and kicking but it's very rare for companies to to make it past a uh, hundred years right uh, things change the 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 climates change the environment for that business might change and it throws off um it's 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 uh dominance in in whatever industry it's in new competitors come in and do it better right uh netflix came in and just took out blockbuster when i was growing up as a kid there was a blockbuster in every corner netflix took them out so that's what i want to close this podcast with is understanding when you have these three things down don't go dabbling in other stuff don't be looking for individual stocks they're gonna do some crazy stuff don't look at cryptos they're gonna be the future don't look at the active managed funds that are here today gone tomorrow uh history learn from history history has a lot of experience to share with you and many many funds many many fund managers and many many stocks have uh come and gone but the index still stands here today and it continues to plunge i'm sorry to push forward <laughs> to plunge to push ahead push forward and i don't see a better model than that i really don't and that's why all my money is in the index funds in my specific strategy not saying it's the best strategy not saying it's the worst but it's the best for me and going forward the thing that i have to focus on is just contributions it's such a peaceful fun way to invest um sure it's boring yeah it's probably more fun to watch paint dry than watch my portfolio but at the end of the day it continues to make me money uh while i don't have to worry about it i think that's what a lot of us should be striving for thank you so much for tuning into episode 71 of the monkey finance podcast on your way out if you enjoy the content please share with one friend also if you're able to on the platform that you're listening on if you could leave me a rating or some type of review let me know how I'm doing. I'd really appreciate it and help spread the word of this podcast. You guys take care. Have a great rest of your day. And remember, move obstacles, keep investing.